This is the human side of healthcare, where we explore all aspects of today's ever-changing healthcare environment. Brought to you by the Dallas-Fort Worth Hospital Council and featuring CEO Stephen Love with co-host Thomas Miller. Now, let's make healthcare human again. Welcome to the human side of healthcare. Delighted you're with us today. You know, October is Breast Cancer Awareness Month, and we're delighted that we've got Janet St. James with us today. You've seen Janet on WFAA. She was a news reporter there for years. She's now with Medical City Healthcare, and this is her third appearance on the human side of healthcare. Janet, welcome back. Hi, Stephen Thomas. I am really glad to be able to be back to talk with you guys again. Well, we certainly appreciate it. And you've been on before and you've talked about breast cancer and your treatment as a patient, but can you give us an update on how you're doing? Well, I'm happy to say that I am right now stable, or at least I was as as of my last PET scan. Um, For those who don't know, I was diagnosed with breast cancer in 2015 and then um, was diagnosed with metastatic breast cancer in 2018. Uh, When breast cancer spreads to an area farther from where it started to another part of the body, doctors say that that cancer has metastasized. And in my case, my cancer has metastasized to my bones and the lining of one lung. Um, It's a scary diagnosis. It's stage four. It's not considered curable, but treatments are improving. And I'm happy to say that right now, three years later, I am currently stable. That's not the same as being in remission, but my cancer is not right now spreading. You know, that is just such good news. And we're just so glad to hear that news, Janet. In fact, I know during part of this time period, we had to deal with COVID. But I heard that you got to do something on your bucket list. Did you take a trip recently? I did. I got to take a trip to Italy, which had been a lifelong dream. And it's amazing, Steve, because now I'm really making time in my life to take trips, even if they're weekend trips, to see things that I've always wanted to do because you never know what tomorrow brings. So why wait? I'm not waiting anymore. You know, Italy is such a fantastic place. Is there one thing that you remember from that trip that really stands out? I think I most enjoyed the cheesy but not cheesy experience of a gondola ride in Venice. I thought Venice was magical, amazing, and I thought the gondola ride was extraordinarily peaceful and really put me back in time a little bit, and I I enjoyed it tremendously. You know, Janet, as as we were talking about uh, breast cancer and when you were diagnosed and the treatments that you're going through, and then we throw COVID into the equation, you know, I know that when you're out and about, I'm sure you still take precautions. Uh, You have to. Am I correct? I do. I'm one of the few that's still wearing a mask, but even that didn't stop me from getting COVID-19 twice in the span of about five weeks. So I'm doing everything that I can, but I need others to do everything that they can do too. So yes, I had it twice in about five weeks. And because it was separated by enough time, I don't think it was a rebound case. Um, I think it was two different strains. But that shows how low my immunity is. That is amazing. We're so glad that uh, you survived two bouts of that. And and wearing a mask, I know, is is really going to help protect. You know, to, to women especially, 
men too, but primarily women that are listening to this broadcast. What message from October being Breast Cancer Awareness Month would you like to really leave with them from this discussion today? Probably a few things. First of all, I'm really glad to help bring greater awareness to breast cancer for women and for men, because with greater awareness comes greater financial support, not just to find a cure, but also to find life-extending treatments for people like me. Um, I would also say that early detection is really an important message. Early detection saves lives. Monthly self-breast exams are vitally important for women, starting when they're teenagers, to get to learn their own bodies so that they can recognize when changes happen later in life. Um, Annual mammograms starting at age 40 for women of average risk, earlier if you're at higher risk. Um, Some organizations recommend mammograms at the age of 50. I recommend that women talk to their doctor about what's best for them. And while mammograms aren't perfect, they are the best technology currently available. So um, really want everyone to self-screen and then also seek out the screening that's available thanks to marvelous medical advances. You know, you've given some great advice there, Janet. So I do want to ask you, was there a history of breast cancer in your family? Yes, my mom had actually a stage zero breast cancer that was discovered when she thought she was having, when she was having a cyst removed, they discovered the breast cancer. And she's done quite well. She's in her 80s. She never had a recurrence. But I also have um, cousins on my mother's side who also have breast cancer. So certainly there's a genetic component in my family. I've had all the gene testing that you can have that's available and there's nothing that they can see right now that is a genetic link, but that doesn't mean that it's not there and that we just haven't discovered it yet. And that's why continued research is is really vitally important. You know, Janet, I've known you for a number of years, and I was so glad when you came over to the healthcare side and no longer a reporter, because by golly, you used to ask me some tough questions. Uh, (laughs) But I, I do want to ask you this, knowing your personality knowing how upbeat you sound today, having to deal with cancer, especially breast cancer, what keeps your spirits up? Well, I'm not always upbeat. I'm an ordinary person. And so I I have swings just like everybody else. But I am extraordinarily grateful for advances in modern medicine that have kept me here today. In fact, Steve, I so believe in science that I've taken part in a couple of clinical trials in association with my breast cancer. And I'm very pleased to say that I was in a three-year clinical trial for a medication and I have outlived the clinical trial. So that's a lot to be grateful for. Hallelujah. That is just great that you outlived that clinical trial. You know, Janet, it's just always so uplifting to me to talk with you, but I'm going to pause now and see if Thomas has some questions. Well, I'm thrilled with this conversation. This is just so, as you say, upbeat and positive. You know, Janet, you made a reputation for yourself at WFAA Channel 8 News by not missing a beat. You didn't miss a story. You got inside that story and you attacked it. And it sounds like you did the same approach here. This was not going to get you down. 
I absolutely believe that knowledge is power in all aspects of my life. So research for me was really important when it came to breast cancer. I highly recommend it for for anyone else that's facing any sort of disease process, whether it be heart disease or kidney disease or COVID-19, whatever the case is, I highly recommend that you educate yourself because that will, um, that'll help guide your decisions very importantly. I just absolutely believe it as a journalist and as a, and as a person that education is very important. Janet St. James, formerly from WFAA Channel 8 News, now Medical City Healthcare, telling us how she continues to beat breast cancer. Janet's coming back on Breast Cancer Awareness Month, and we're going to talk to her also about her career. How did she go from news to healthcare? Next on the human side of healthcare. This is the human side of healthcare, where we feature healthcare's hottest topics and what our North Texas area hospitals are doing to make healthcare human again. Welcome back. It is Breast Cancer Awareness Month in October, and we have Janet St. James with us. No stranger to this program, and probably no stranger to many of you. After 25 years in front of the camera at WFAA Channel 8 News, now she's working in healthcare with Medical City Healthcare. The day she started there was when she was diagnosed with breast cancer. And Janet, I remember those times, and you spent quite a bit of time looking at different options. I mean, you were a journalist with connections in healthcare, so you did some research. I did. I actually had um, consultations with five different oncologists before going down a path for a treatment plan, just because I wanted to hear what everybody had to say. Now, not everybody has got that same philosophy, and I know plenty of people that went with whoever was recommended by their doctor, but I really believed that I wanted to go and um, find a partner in my treatment and make sure that I I understood what his or her treatment plan was going to be and their logic behind the treatment plan, hoping that whatever the treatment was, would last a very long time and extend my life. And I mean, you've knocked the cover off the ball. Well, I wouldn't go that far, but maybe I will someday. I mean, right now it's, you know, you, you live for the, you truly do live in the moment as the commercials for metastatic breast cancer say you truly do live for the moment or maybe the next trip. Yes. Always a trip, right? You know, what's exciting, Janet, is we continue to make incredible progress on this disease And I'm just wondering, I mean, who knows in your future, what else could come up? There's no question about it. Um, The medicate, the big medication that I'm on that I won't name was only available for a few minutes, for a few months prior to my diagnosis with metastatic breast cancer. So that advance was made just when I needed it. And when this medication quits working for me, as most medications for metastatic breast cancer eventually do, I'm going to need that next step. So what is the next step? Well, I need to rely on fundraising so that there can be more research to discover the next step for me until we get to the place where we can find a cure. So that's really important. Okay, you mentioned the genetic piece and you have a daughter who is now college age. What is she taking away from this? My kids know everything about my breast cancer or at least as much as they want to know because they're they're kids, um, they're college age kids. Um, She knows everything, and she is very aware of making sure that she self-monitors herself, that she is at high risk of breast cancer, 
Um, and when the time comes, she'll make sure that she's under really good guidance from an excellent doctor. Have you taken it then as far, Janet, as genetic testing for her? Oh, uh, no, I have not taken it for her. And the reason I have not taken it for her is that I have had genetic testing for myself and it didn't show any sort of genes that would be linked to uh, a history of breast cancer. So that, that doesn't mean that it's not there, that there's not a gene that just hasn't been discovered yet, but what they've got uh, available right now in terms of genetic testing has not revealed anything for me. Why is that important? Why is genetic, te- genetic testing important? Because if they can find a gene mutation, then they can develop a treatment that targets that specific gene mutation and that can that can potentially help you. So there's not, there's not a treatment for me specifically for a gene that I happen to have. You mentioned COVID. What was that like? Not fun. It was not fun. Um, my first bout was worse than the second bout, but I had a, a most excellent family physician who did telemedicine with me daily and multiple times a day to make sure that my blood pressure um, was good, that my oxygen levels were good, and really helped me through it in a way that I am eternally grateful for and um, just so appreciative of her. And coincidentally, she her passion is raising money for breast cancer. So um, I'll just never forget her. I have a friend in Florida who is on about the same trajectory as you are with progressed metastatic breast cancer. She got it. She was pretty sick for two or three weeks. I was I was sick for about a week. I was probably not as sick as as I might have been had I not taken uh, the antiviral medication that's on the market, which clearly helped me very quickly. Boy, you are following the protocols and getting these incredible results. This is quite a testimony. Well, I believe in knowledge and I've really tried to follow all of the trends, whether it be my own, you know, my own personal health or, or health trends just in the community. I'm following flu right now, which is on the upswing. Janet, thank you so much. This is just so encouraging. Steve, I know we're going to continue this conversation, so I'm going to roll it back over to you. Since we've got Janet with us, we thought it would really be great to find out how she started her career and then how she eventually got into healthcare. So, Janet, where were you born and raised? Well, I was born in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, but I'm a proud Texan and was raised uh, in the Houston area. And so I consider that I grew up in, in Texas. I'm a proud graduate of the University of Texas at Austin, where I got a degree in journalism uh, many, many years ago. And that's sort of how I started my education. So when you were first out of school, what was your first job? Like so many others, uh, even today, I didn't get a job right away. So I went back to school and I got a teaching certificate. So many decades ago, I was uh, sort of somebody strangely certified me to teach secondary journalism, speech and English. I never became a teacher. Um, I did do student teaching. I never became a teacher because I ended up getting a job at a TV station in Abilene. And from there, I worked at a cable uh, news, small cable news team. And then I moved to Oklahoma City for two years before getting a job at WFAA here in Dallas. Wow. So you started originally in Abilene and then moved around and ended up at WFAA. 
Exactly. That's really how it works in journalism is you work your way up from small markets up to bigger markets. So you get more experience as you as you move on and move on up in your career. You covered the gamut, didn't you, for WFAA, all business sectors? Absolutely. Uh, I started off working nights and weekends at Channel 8, and I covered everything from crime, weather, general assignments, everything before being assigned, assigned to the health and medical beat. So let me ask you, you left WFAA and went to work in healthcare. What piqued your interest to do that? Well, after 25 years in television journalism, I felt like I'd really accomplished most of what I wanted. So when I started looking for a transition, I really wanted a post-journalism career that also positively impacted lives. Uh, And I felt like I wasn't done telling great stories. I knew that many of the reports that I did changed people's lives, helped bring awareness to um, situations, conditions that they were dealing with. And I really wanted to continue having that connection. And healthcare is incredibly fulfilling in that space. I may not have the ability to actually perform, uh, you know, medical uh, therapies, but I know that uh, I can tell good stories. And so in my role in PR and media communications that I really started to seek out, I get to maintain my connection to the media while also helping to tell the stories on how advanced medicine and compassionate care make a difference to the community and often save lives. You know, that's a great answer, and I totally agree. I've been in healthcare my entire career, and even though I'm not a clinician either, you know, helping people, uh, helping support the industry uh, really is that servant attitude. But I want to ask you this, Janet, because I really want to know, what have you learned on the other side of the camera that you didn't know previously? I don't think I can talk about it. (laughs) There's so many... um, laws that are designed to protect patients and protect processes, it is fascinating to see it from the other side where you really get the whole picture. Because sometimes what you can hear in a news report or from a patient's perspective is not the whole story. And you sometimes just can't see the whole story until you're on the other side. You know, that's a great answer, and I certainly understand and appreciate that. So as a reporter throughout your career, is there one story that really sticks out in your mind that you were glad you could cover? There are so many, Steve. I'll tell you the one story that I wish that I could have covered as a journalist, but I lived it from the other side and that is the COVID-19 pandemic. I interviewed you many times, Steve, when we were talking about pandemics and how hospital systems would react to them when we were talking about um, SARS and coronaviruses 15 years ago. And here it is that we we lived through it um, and experienced it firsthand in this country and in this world. And I, I sort of wish that I could have covered it from the other side. I hope that I did my part as a communicator for Medical City Healthcare in helping bring awareness, not just to consumers, but also to our colleagues within our healthcare system. So I hope I made a difference on my side. But um, I got to admit, I, I sort of wish that I would have been able to cover it as a journalist on the other side too. This is the incomparable Janet St. James telling her story of cancer and her career. 
We have the entire interview on our podcast, The Human Side of Healthcare, also on our YouTube channel. This is so good. We have just a couple more questions, and it's Breast Cancer Awareness Month, so Janet comes back for a few more questions right after this. Welcome back to The Human Side of Healthcare, where we explore how to take better care of your health so you can live a happier, healthier life. With DFW Hospital Council CEO Stephen Love, along with Thomas Miller. Welcome back. We've been talking with no stranger to the Metroplex, Janet St. James, 25 years in front of the camera at WFAA. Now she's at Medical City Healthcare, talking about first her cancer journey, then her career journey. The entire interview is on our podcast, The Human Side of Healthcare, and our YouTube channel under the same name. You know, Janet, as young people are deciding their career, whether it's in media, regardless of which side of the camera, what advice can you share? In terms of journalism, I would say that having a college uh, degree in journalism and having an internship is incredibly important. Don't be afraid to start small and experience everything. Do it yourself. That's part of this career. So I would say that. In terms of healthcare, there are so many opportunities in healthcare. Steve, you can talk more about that than I can. Um, anything that you would want to do from frontline patient care to behind the scenes, it all makes a difference in people's lives. And I have really witnessed that in the time that I've been at Medical City Healthcare, just the care and compassion from the colleagues that I'm honored to get to work alongside. Janet, great answers to my questions, but I know Thomas, and he's got some questions also. Well, thank you, Steve. Janet, we've just got a couple of minutes, but I know that as a reporter, one of the things you loved at Channel 8, and I'm sure that you love at Medical City, are new and even revolutionary technologies. So what shines in your eye in that department? Um, Well, I I see a lot in in the world of cancer um, and cancer treatment. I think that's really exciting. In terms of technology specifically, robotics are very interesting to me. The minimally invasive robotics um, can make such a difference in the quality of life for people. If you need a joint replacement or a hip replacement, um, those, those technologies are allowing people who would have been frightened of surgery to get their quality of life back and in a short, much shorter period of time. So I'm, I'm, very interested in that. I'm also interested in um, the advances to transplants, uh, people that would not have lived very long prior. There are, there are some incredible advances in the world of transplant surgeries that I think are, are astonishing. Steve, we need to lean in here because there's one other important question that we have to wrap this up with. How is Burl? <laughs> <laughs> The, for those who don't know, Burl is my stray dog uh, that I picked up in Burleson, Texas, Burl from Burleson, and he is excellent. He is my constant companion and my very best friend. When anything is going wrong in my world, as long as he's near me, everything is okay because he is an amazing companion. So thank you for asking about Burl. Well, if people are not on your Facebook page, Janet has a medical Facebook page that's open to join, and there are quite a few adorable Burl pictures there, so you can catch it for yourself. Well, we saved each other when we found each other. We were meant for each other. Oh, that's so special. Thank you so much for being with us. Thanks, guys. It was a pleasure. Always glad to talk to you. 
Janet St. James for this October 2022 Breast Cancer Awareness Month update. Thank you. Now we're going to shift gears and go to Children's Health. Dr. Kimberly Goodspeed is a pediatric neurologist there, also an assistant professor at UT Southwestern Medical Center. And we are going to talk about something that Steve and I didn't know, but has had a name change or a moniker change, and that is autism. And that will unfold in the interview. But Dr. Goodspeed, welcome to the program. Thank you for being here. And let's just start at the beginning. How do you define autism? I'm so glad you're starting there because that's, um, I think, the best place to get started is to make sure we're all using the same terminology. So autism spectrum disorder is a developmental disorder. It's clinically diagnosed and it's based on observations of behaviors that we see in the patient as well as maybe some reports of different behaviors that the parents or caregivers are seeing at home or at school or in their kind of daily lives. And the definition has evolved over the last few decades, but our most recent definition really is more of an umbrella term. So everything falls under the diagnosis of autism spectrum disorder now, and it divides the symptoms into two different buckets or categories of symptoms. So patients have to have symptoms in both of these categories in order to meet criteria for a diagnosis of autism. The first category is problems with social communication. So that's things like poor eye contact or not using our words or other gestures to be able to communicate our wants and needs, not making friends or getting along or being interested in peers as much. And then the second category is restrictive interests or repetitive behaviors. Um, and sensory symptoms can also fall into this bucket. These are things that you may have classically seen depicted in movies or on TV of individuals with autism who may rock repetitively or flap, but it can be other different types of kind of unique movements to that patient that they do over and over again. It can also be repetitive language. So things like echolalia, where maybe they repeat or parrot a lot of things that they say, even with the same intonation. Some kids may have a over-interest in particular topics like trains or dinosaurs um, or an interest in unusual things that a typical three-year-old may not enjoy sweeping or holding a hairbrush, but this child is very attached to those things. And then sensory issues can come in different flavors as well, where maybe some kids are really averse or sensitive or get upset with certain sensory inputs like loud noises or tags in clothes, while other kids may like to touch and feel and taste and smell a lot of things outside of when we would typically see that for kids. Now, any individual can have any one of these symptoms, but you really need to have symptoms in all the different areas, and those symptoms need to be kind of negatively impacting how you function in your daily life. So it's making it hard for them to go to school or make friends or um, participate in the community activities that their family wants to do. And that's when we call it autism spectrum disorder. You know, is there a specific age that you begin to notice these symptoms in children? Yeah, I'd say most kids start to come to attention in those early toddler years. And the most common first symptom is language delay and poor eye contact. Now, not all kids will do this, but the most common presentation to my clinic is a patient who maybe didn't have 
their first words by their first birthday, weren't putting two-word phrases together by their second birthday, and then they may be screened positive for some of the autism screeners that their pediatrician was doing in the office. But it's really those early toddler years when our social communication skills are starting to blossom and that you notice that there's a difference in kids that will end up going on to have a diagnosis of autism versus kids that are developing in the typical way we expect them to. Are there degrees of autism like mild to severe? Absolutely. And and so we think of these more in terms of how much support does an individual need um, to make it through their daily lives. And with the most recent iteration of our diagnostic manual, um, that 2013 version where everything got lumped under the diagnosis of autism spectrum disorder, they also classified these different levels. So a level one, a level two, and a level three. So level one is the most mild, needs very minimal support, if any, to you know function in the classroom and kind of get through their day-to-day lives. Level three is our most severe classification, and those kids need quite a bit of support or substantial support to be able to function in the classroom or, you know, get through a day um, or make it through therapy. And then level two falls somewhere in between in that moderate range. These levels aren't specifically defined. Um, They're a little bit arbitrary. And any individual person may be a level two on a good day and a level three on a bad day. And so they're not fixed in stone either. Um, So these can kind of change as kids go through really successful periods, or maybe they have a period where they're struggling and need a little bit more support. Dr. Goodspeed, we mentioned at the beginning that there is a name or at least a moniker kind of modification here. Now, I always heard autism and then you would hear Asperger's. What is the distinction and now also what is the proper terminology? Yeah, that's a great question and we get it a lot. So Asperger's um, was known kind of colloquially as those what we used to call high functioning um, autistic individuals or um, what we may call now people with low support needs who have autism. However, um, Asperger's syndrome really got taken out of this most recent iteration of um, autism diagnoses. As I mentioned, it's gone through a number of revisions over the decades since it was introduced kind of in the 50s and 60s. But part of the trouble with many eponyms in medicine is that they may not have had the best of beginnings or may not be highlighting um, or bringing honor to individuals who we'd want to remember in a good way. So Dr. Asperger is one of those unfortunate um, eponyms that he was an Austrian physician, and actually history now shows us that he sympathized with the Nazi regime and was actually sending some children to concentration camps. And so as we've kind of evolved in medicine and some of these stories have come to light, we're trying really hard to get rid of some of these eponyms that may honor different names um, without getting rid of the diagnoses that people and and families may kind of link to or or feel connected to. So that's why we've shifted to calling everything autism spectrum disorder. And then we start to define what is each individual's strengths and weaknesses underneath that umbrella and really focus our treatments there. And I think it's also made things a little more inclusive for um, patients to access different therapies instead of having, you know, 10 different names for variations of the same thing. We're using one name to call it all um, and then 
making the treatment plans individualized. This is Dr. Kimberly Goodspeed. She's a pediatric neurologist at Children's Health and also an assistant professor at UT Southwestern Medical Center. We're going to continue this conversation because with such a large percentage of the population of kids now being in one of these categories, we want to know more. It's also on our podcast and YouTube channel, The Human Side of Healthcare. More with Dr. Goodspeed next. Covering the healthcare topics that matter most to North Texas. This is the human side of healthcare with DFW Hospital Council CEO Stephen Love, along with Thomas Miller. Welcome back. We're continuing our conversation about autism, our precious kids, with Dr. Kimberly Goodspeed, pediatric neurologist at Children's Health and assistant professor at UT Southwestern Medical Center. Steve? As you look at those different levels, Are there treatments available for autism? There definitely are treatments for autism. And the mainstay treatment is actually therapy. So uh, most of our kids will be in a variety of different types of therapy, depending on their needs. Um, Speech and language therapy can help with some of those communication problems. Some kids will eventually talk late. Um, Some kids may not ever have spoken words, but they might be able to use an assistive communication device like a picture system or a tablet that can have different pictures and help them communicate their wants and needs to strangers even. A lot of kids will get occupational therapy, so that can help with things like fine motor skills. It can also help with things like those sensory issues I mentioned, an occupational therapist can help them learn how to get used to different sensations that may be troubling to them. And then a lot of our kids can have balance issues or coordination problems and occupational therapy can also help with some of those issues. And then behavioral therapy or applied behavioral analysis or ABA therapy is another type of therapy that's very specific for autism. And it tries to kind of lump all of this stuff together to help kids learn how to take turns, learn how to ask for the things that they want or need, learn how to make friends or um, socialize and engage and participate in their daily activities. And no child is the same with a diagnosis of autism. And so all of these therapies really get tailored to each individual's strengths and weaknesses and challenges and things that they need to work on. Now, on the medical side of things, we also have medicines that can help with different symptoms of autism, but we don't have any medicine that treats autism. So what do I mean by symptoms? A lot of kids with autism may have irritability or aggression or even depression or anxiety, and we have medications that can help with some of those things. You know, medications for attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, um, ADHD, are also an option for some kids where many will also meet criteria for that diagnosis. And then medical things like sleep issues or constipation, we can help with some of those symptoms, which are much more common or prevalent in a patient population with autism than they are in kind of the general population of kids. You know, for our parents that are listening, what do they need to know about autism? I think the most important thing that I try to remind our families is that if you've met one person with autism, you've met one person with autism. I think a lot of people in the field will say that. It takes a team to support these children and families, and it's great to reach out to all those different resources and utilize all those different resources because the treatment plan really has to be individualized to that particular patient um, who's struggling with different challenges that they're facing. I also like to remind families that 
they still are going through all their typical developmental stages as well. So the terrible twos are really challenging with tantrums. Those might just be a little bit worse than a child who has autism. The teenage years can be challenging um, as kids are going through those kind of independence and and trying to define themselves stages. And even a child with autism is going to go through some of those grumpy teenage years too. It just may look a little bit different. What are some key takeaways that you'd really want to share with our listeners related to living with autism? I think that we are living in a really exciting time for a couple reasons. Um, One, autism is super common now. So one in 44 children is our most recent um, estimation of how many kids in the United States have a diagnosis of autism. Now, that means that your chances of meeting somebody who knows somebody with autism or has encountered it at some point is a lot greater now. And I think that the world is becoming more inclusive because of that. So you see sensory friendly um, events pop up around the community. Um, The Dallas Zoo is actually a partner that we've been doing a research project with for the last couple of years. And I've been really impressed with how sensory friendly they've tried to make an environment like the zoo. So they've got sensory kits that kids can go check out when they go visit the zoo. And it just makes that world more accessible for a kid who has special needs and um, maybe some differences. And I think the biggest take home message is always going to be that it may look different for a child with autism. So that may be disciplining looks different, success looks different, schooling looks different. But different doesn't always mean wrong or bad. And so it's all about figuring out how do we support those strengths and how do we strengthen up those challenging areas? What a great message that you just gave. And I want to make sure I heard you correctly. One in 44 children may have some form of autism. Is that correct? That is correct. It's a striking number. And I think if you think about most elementary school classes in the state of Texas, I think are around the size of about 30 kids now, um, give or take. And so that's at least one child about in every other classroom. So it's really, really common now. All right. Let me ask you a question about your wheelhouse, neurology. What is happening or, let's say, not happening in a child's brain as they are in those early critical years that causes autism? That's the million-dollar question. I'd probably win the Nobel Prize if I could answer it really well today. But um, there's a ton of research going on to try to figure out just that. And it's probably not just one thing. There's probably a lot of different things. If we really think about language, it's incredibly complicated Um, how we learn to use language and see letters, turn them into words and turn words into phrases and phrases into sentences and so on. And all the different intonations that we'll use to convey emotion, it gets so complicated so fast. And that's just one aspect of what's going on in a child with autism. So lots of researchers all over the country and really all over the world are looking at different aspects of autism to better understand each individual piece and hoping that one day we get to put all those puzzle pieces together. One place that we really like to to think about studying is the genetics of autism. So we've got several colleagues here on campus at um, UT Southwestern um, who are looking at different genetic causes of autism, searching for new genes that might be causing autism, and trying to understand the ones that we do know about and trying to figure out where do they fit into that puzzle. 
So each gene is responsible for encoding a protein, and many of those proteins are responsible for brain development and brain function. And if we can start to understand how each of these genes fits into that big puzzle, we might be able to start to chip away or figure out different treatment plans or targeted treatments to actually get at um, the root cause or the, the underlying deficit. You and Steve talked about speech development. Can you tell our parents what a normal speech development timeline would be for a child? It starts very early. So your very early newborn is going to be cooing and making some little sweet baby noises, usually by their um, second month. And then by six or months or so, kids are usually babbling. So baba, mama, dada. And then by nine to 12 months of age, you're starting to see maybe they're using mama more specifically for mom dada more specifically for dad and then really around their first birthday is when you'll start to see some of those really more concrete words that are recognizable and used repetitively um, and consistently and then usually language just starts to explode around that time and they have at least 50 words by their second birthday and they're starting to put two words together like want cookie go outside different little phrases like that And then fast forward to their fourth birthday, and you should be able to have a conversation with a four-year-old. They should be able to form sentences, kind of communicate what happened at preschool. um, And most people should be able to understand what they're saying. And if a child is not on that track, does that mean they have autism? It does not. It means that they have a language delay and it just triggers them to be evaluated or looked at a little bit more closely. So remember to have autism, you have to have those social impairments as well as the restrictive and repetitive behaviors as well. But it may be that first clue that we need to start thinking about it or looking for those signs or symptoms. The other really important thing is if a child presents with a language delay, you want to check their hearing and make sure that they're not delayed in language just because they can't hear their world and all the words that are being spoken to them. This has been Dr. Kimberly Goodspeed from Children's Health and UT Southwestern Medical Center. Steve, some great information on a topic that we didn't know affected so many kids. Absolutely great information. You're so right, Thomas. You know, the state fair is fully underway, and that means you should talk to your physician or pharmacist and consider getting that flu shot. Join us next week for the human side of healthcare.